Thanks, Ricky and Roxy and Wiley and Raquel and Brittany for bringing us. Did I miss anyone? Anna and Nick, because, you know, Nick's back there doing all the, yeah, and that takes a little bit of work, too. Good morning, church. It's good to see you here this morning. We are studying the book of Galatians, right? We're in chapter 4. We're looking at verses 21 to 31, and we're going to be looking at some really cool stuff here this morning. According to the New Testament, and especially Paul's writings, there's this term or this phrase that we use called the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the Old Covenant and the New Covenant have two applications. There's an historical application, and then there's a theological application or a spiritual application. And a lot of times when we talk about the Old and New Covenant, we think about it in historical application. Like the Old Covenant is like everything that happened before Christ. The Old Covenant. And the New Covenant is like everything that happened after Christ came. We're living under the New Covenant. The um, Jews and the Hebrews were living under the Old Covenant. That's like the historical framework, the way that we talk about it. And at the cross, the Old and New Covenant are divided. But then there's this theological or spiritual understanding of this term where the Old Covenant refers to salvation by works. Salvation by keeping the law, and the new covenant refers to salvation by grace in Jesus Christ. So that's the spiritual application. Because we've got to admit, even if you lived in the old covenant time before the cross, you still were saved by salvation in Jesus Christ, right? I mean, there's no one in the Old Testament that's actually saved by works of the law. Everyone in the Old Testament looked forward to the Messiah, to the Lamb, just like we in the New Testament look back to the cross and to the Lamb, right? So this, this historical framework for the Old and New Covenant, it's beneficial because it, it tells us, you know, that before Christ and after Christ, but, but the theological term is the one we really want to look at. Because just like you could be in the Old Testament looking forward to the Lamb and saved by grace, just so you can be in the New Testament... And you could be looking back to the law and thinking you're saved by works. It's just as important for us to understand under the new covenant, under this historical framework of grace, that we are saved by grace and not by the law. It's just as easy for us, even though we're in this historical dispensation, to think that we're saved by law keeping. And that's exactly the issue that Paul is dealing with in the church in Galatia. His whole epistle is written to deal with that issue. We've got new Christians coming into faith, accepting Christ, and then we've got Judaizers, we've got Jewish believers coming into that church and convincing those new Christians that actually you're not saved by grace alone, you're saved by grace and by a little bit of law-keeping. And so Paul is going to reach deep into the Old Testament pocket and he's going to pull out an amazing story and he's going to use that as an allegory if you will as a a parable as an illustration of what it means to be saved by grace as we live under this dispensation of grace that's a basic construct that we're looking at here Um, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 31 first where paul makes personal application to judaism Um, because Judaism was a religion that actually ended up bringing people into bondage because that religion started putting the law on people and saying you've got to be saved by the law. And uh, and then we're going to look at the last half of these verses. I should should say that that is the last half. We're going to be looking at the first half, 21 to 27, where Paul gives the historical background for his argument, and then those last verses, 
um, verses 28 through 31. So let's just begin uh, with a word of prayer, and then we'll get right into our scripture reading. Father in heaven, I want to thank you again this morning for uh, a full church, for each one that's here, for the opportunity we have to, to come to your throne, to ask for your help and your grace in this time of need. I want to thank you for the praise team and for the blessing that we have in coming together and, and lifting our hearts in unison to your throne of grace and praise and in worship. And I pray that your spirit will be here, that you will speak to us through your word and that the word will come home to our hearts and that you'll minister to us and give us the food that we need, the spiritual food that we need today, now, here. And we pray and ask these favors all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, Galatians chapter 4, 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written, Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of a, div- of a divine promise. These things are to be taken figuratively. The woman represents, the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar, that is the mother of Ishmael. Now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you have never born child, Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who are never in labor, because more are the children of, you, of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are the children of promise. At, the time, at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the, the son born by the power of the Spirit. And so it is now. It is the same now. But what does the Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. I want to say something right here so that you don't get sidetracked in the literalness of this story. This is a story that is used Figuratively, and it's powerful because this can help us to understand a lot of Old Testament stories when we apply this principle to a lot of what happens in the Old Testament. We can go back to the Old Testament, we can say, Wow, why did God let Sarah kick Ishmael and Hagar out of the camp? Okay, and we can try to understand that. But the point of the story that, that, that Paul is bringing home to us right now is listen, Hagar and Ishmael represent trying to save yourselves by your works. And that needs to go out of the camp. Don't look at the literalness of the story. Understand what it means, what it represents. And then, you'll, then in your mind and heart, you'll say, wow, what God is actually saying to us is, we need to get rid of righteousness by works. <laughs> righteousness by works needs to be kicked out of the camp. We need to put our full trust in the promises of God for our salvation and not trust in what we can do to save ourselves. That's the point Paul is making. And with that point in mind, let's go right in to this story. All right. Tell me you who want to be under the law. 
Are you not aware of what under the law says, what it means? The term under the law means that we believe in being saved through our obedience to the law. We've come under the law as a means of salvation. And so the way that we get saved is by perfect obedience to the law of God. That's what it means to be under the law. And Paul is saying, you can't, you can't be under the law. There's no way that you're going to make it if you're under the law. So therefore, Paul is strongly suggesting to the Galatians, do you hear what the law says? Now, the word law here refers not just to, like, the commandments. It refers to primarily the Old Testament, but primarily the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So you've got Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, uh, Deuteronomy. That's primarily what's being talked about here. So what Paul does is he says, okay, let me take you back to the law. Let me take you back to these first five books, and let me illustrate to you why it is that this, not going to, this is not going to work. So he goes to one of the books of the law. Specifically, he goes to the book of Genesis, and he brings out here a story of Abraham and his two sons. So it's important for us, though, if we're going to understand what Paul is saying, what he's trying to communicate to understand the story. So we need to go back to the book of Genesis and we need to understand the story of Paul, excuse me, of Abraham and his two sons that Paul is trying to tell us here. So basically what happens is we have Abraham being called out of the land of Ur by God and at this time Abraham is about 75 years old. So, you know, in our terminology, I mean, in our thinking, that's pretty old. You know, he's an old guy, right? I'm thinking less and less that way now, but, you know, that's how we are. So, so Abraham's 75. His, his wife, Sarah, is 10 years younger, which means she's 10 years older than me, right? So she's not too old. She's 65. He's 75. God calls them out of the land of Ur. God calls their family out of the land of Ur. Out of the land of Ur they come, and God makes a promise. He says to Abraham and to his family, he says... And Abraham 75, he says, you are going to have children and you are going to be the progenitors of an entire generation. I mean, just hundreds and hundreds and thousands of, of, of people are going to come from you. Now, the reason why this is a, a struggle for Abraham at this time is because he's 75, his wife's 65, and they don't have any children. Sarah's never had any children. She's barren at this point. And so God is making this promise to them, and, and really they want children, so they're really happy, they're really excited about this promise. I mean, you can imagine if you never had children, you, and God promised you're going to have a child. I mean, it's a little bit tricky because you know how old Sarah is, and so she does kind of laugh about it a little bit, you know, and God says, did I hear you laughing? <laughs> and she says, no, no, I wasn't laughing. Yes, you were. The thing that I love about the story, too, is that God wants us to be honest with him. If we honestly think it's impossible for God to do in us what he promises he can do, and we just laugh at that, and then God catches us laughing, it's okay for us to say, yeah, I was laughing. It kind of seems like impossible, you know? We can be honest with God. Because God is going to be, as you read the story, God is going to be communicating to your heart that there are things in your life that God wants to do for you that seem like they are impossible. They're impossible. It seems like there's no way you can bring forth that fruit of the Spirit in your life. Maybe it's issues of being more patient with your kids or with your neighbors or with your friends or with, with other people. Maybe it's, it's just how you relate to people that you work with, how you relate to people in your neighborhood or in your church. And you're thinking, there's no way I could ever like that person, never mind love that person. I just can't relate to, I can't have, I can't conquer, I can't be the person that God wants me to be. That fruit's not coming forth. And God says, don't look at yourself, don't look at your flesh, don't look at... The, the, the years that you've been barren in that area, 
Look to my promises. Look to me. And don't laugh about this. I can do this. I can do this. And so a year goes by. Two years goes by. And still, there's no child. In fact, eight years goes by and there's no child. And Abraham begins to doubt God's promises. And he actually becomes a little bit anxious about this. And so God visits Abraham again and asks him, you know, why are you fearful? Why have you begun to doubt my promises? And Abraham's response is, well, you know, God, it takes about nine months to have a child. And it's been eight years. So, you know, I've still got the same old habit. I've still got the same old hang-up. I've still got the same old difficulty. I'm still barren. The fruit's not coming forth. What's the deal? And so God takes him out in the evening, tells him to look up at the, at the clear sky. And you know what it's like to look at a clear sky on a, on a, on a summer evening. There's stars are just shining out there. And, there's just, and God says, count them. Abraham says, I can't count those stars. He says, that, that's how many children you're going to have. And so he reassures him. But there's still no like hardcore evidence. Another year goes by and another year goes by. I mean, Abraham is really struggling until... Sarah comes up with an idea. Sarah says, hey, listen, God said you were going to have a child, but he didn't say anything about me. You can still have children, but I can't. So what you need to do is you need to work with God. God does part of it, and you do part of it. You work with God, and you get together with my slave girl, Hagar, my Egyptian slave girl, my handmaid here, you get together with her and working together, we can fulfill God's promise. And that's exactly what Abraham does. Abraham listens to his wife. He gets together with Hagar. And guess what? Hagar is pregnant and they have a child. So this is exciting for them. I mean, they're thinking, this is it. And, and in that context, when Ishmael is born, that's the son's name, when Ishmael is born, Ishmael is like a special, he has a special place in the camp because they're thinking this is the child of promise. But unfortunately, this is not what God had in mind. Sarah was wrong. And many times we are. Many times we don't quite get our theology right. We don't quite figure it out. Like, I thought this was going to be good. Like, this worked for a little while. Like, we got excited about this. Like, this is the way. Like, this is the program we needed. Like, you know, this, all the dots are being... But no, God says, no, this isn't actually it. This isn't actually righteousness by faith. This isn't actually the way it works. Ishmael is not the child of promise. You have to rely 100% on me, Abraham, so you've got to wait. Another five years goes by, another 10 years goes by, another 15 years goes by. Abraham is approximately 99 years old. And it says in Romans 4.19, just to give you a context of where Abraham's at at this time, it says, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead when he was about 100 years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. Abraham has come to the place where he can no longer have children. His own body is dead. So it's not just Sarah that can't have children. He can't have children. And now God says, you're ready. See, it's when we totally give up on ourselves, when we totally realize that we can't do it, when we finally come to the place, and it took Abraham 25 years to figure this out, like, 
25 years of trying to do different things and thinking that maybe something might work. 25 years, and then he ex- completely and totally has to give up on himself. And when we finally give up on ourselves, that's when God can step in. That's when God does step in. God steps in, and believe it or not, this is the amazing thing about this whole story, believe it or not, after 25 years, when Abraham is 99, he can't have children. And of course, Sarah can't have children. She gets pregnant. The child of promise is delivered. How? By God, by his power. And, and this is the important part. God can produce what he promises he can produce in our lives. He can do the things that we think are impossible. We think they're impossible because we look at ourselves. And the more you look at yourself, the more impossible it's going to be. Because you can't produce it. Self's not going to be able to produce it. But with God, the Bible says, all things are possible. All things are possible with God. So the whole, the whole story directs us to look to God and not to look to ourselves. And Paul is using this as an allegory, as, as a figurative explanation or illustration of the experience of the new covenant versus the experience of the old covenant. And that's how we get into old covenant experience, even though we're in the new covenant dispensation. Old covenant experience is we're trying to do it. Oh, we're asking God to help us, but we're trying to do it. We're depending on ourselves. New covenant experience is we're looking to God. We're looking to God. We're looking to God. We depend 100% on him and not on ourselves. And so back to our, our original point, the, the, the bond woman and her child has to go out of the camp. What does that mean? It means old covenant experience has to go out. We have to get rid of it. It's got to go. And the only way we're going to be able to experience this new covenant experience is if we allow the old covenant to go out. Because if we keep thinking that we can do it... Now, you remember, uh, all through the Bible, we have examples of illustrious men, illustrious people who followed God with their whole hearts and yet never measured up. We did a, uh, a 3 ABN Live here uh, Thursday, and we talked about the whole idea of Righteousness by faith of the Lord our righteousness. And I thought it would be really good just to summarize the whole Bible. So we went back to the Old Testament. We found two witnesses. We went to the New Testament. We found two witnesses. In the Old Testament, the two witnesses were Job and Daniel. In the New Testament, the two witnesses were Paul and John. And the reason why I wanted to look at these two witnesses from the Old and the New is because in, in two or three witnesses, let every word be established. So when we went to the Old Testament, you looked at Job. Job was socially righteous. And what I mean by that is... His relationship with his kids was just on the mark. I mean, he prayed for them, earnestly made sacrifices for them. When he gets to chapter 29, he talks about how he took care of the stranger and the widow and the orphan. This guy was socially on track. When he came in contact with God, his mouth was stopped and he repented in dust and ashes. The most socially righteous person possibly that ever lived could not stand in the presence of a God of love. And then we looked at Daniel. Daniel was politically righteous. I mean, the guy had no peers. He served under four different rulers, four different presidents, because uh, an amazing spirit was in him. There was no mud, there was no dirt. The only thing he could find against Daniel, the only thing that the political enemies could find against Daniel was that he prayed to his God. Wouldn't it be wonderful if, Colby, someone found some dirt on you and the dirt they found was that you just prayed all the time? Right? You're just always, Kobe's always praying. Like, the guy is just, what's wrong with that guy? He's always praying. That was, that was Daniel's imperfection. 
And yet when Daniel saw Jesus in Daniel chapter 10, Daniel fell down and it says there there was no more goodness in him. Daniel was politically righteous, but he couldn't stand in the presence of God. And then we looked at Paul. Paul identifies himself in, Roman, in Philippians chapter 3. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was circumcised on the eighth day. According to the law, Paul was blameless. I mean, this guy was, this guy was theologically perfect. Theologically perfect. And yet when he came in contact with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was just nothing. Absolutely nothing. He just fell on his face and he was ready to die. That's how his theological righteousness measured up with Christ. And then we looked at John. John was relationally righteous. I mean, this guy had such a close relationship with Christ that he used to lean on his breast. He was identified as the one whom Jesus loved. When Peter denied Christ, John didn't. He followed him all the way to Pilate's court, court uh, and, and there he, he gained entrance even for Peter. The guy was faithful to the end at the cross with Jesus when Jesus gave to him the, 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 the caretaking of his mom at his death. So you've got someone who is socially righteous. You've got someone who is politically righteous. Daniel, you've got someone who is religiously righteous. Paul, you've got someone who is relationally righteous. John, when John saw Jesus in Revelation, he fell down as if he was dead. Here's the point. I don't care how righteous you get. When you come in contact with Jesus, guess what? It's over. You have nothing to contribute to your salvation. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't live a righteous life. It doesn't mean you shouldn't be socially righteous or politically righteous or per, uh, relationally righteous. Or relig- it doesn't mean we shouldn't actually live righteous lives, but it simply means that there's no way that that righteous living is ever going to measure up and gain for you heaven. Our salvation is completely and totally only by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And that's the bottom line. That's the foundation. That's what Paul is bringing to the church in Galatia. You're getting misled here. You're getting deceived. Listen, church, please, don't believe what they're telling you. The whole Old Testament, if you read it correctly, he's pleading with the Galatians. If you read it correctly, the whole Old Testament is reminding us that righteousness by works doesn't work. It doesn't work. And these, these stories are allegories. The woman has to go out. The child has to go out. Not because God is against humans. God took care of Ishmael. God took care of, of, of Hagar. He watched over them. He, he made promises to them. Promises that are still in effect today. But they have to go out because they represent righteousness by works. And righteousness by works has to go out of our experience. Has to go out of our hearts. We have to put our full trust in Jesus Christ. And when we put our full trust in Jesus Christ, guess what? We have the experience of salvation. We have something that God's people have longed for all the way through this experience of sin. And that is righteousness in Jesus Christ. Righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. So he closes up here. We'll just look at the last few verses here. Now, brothers and sisters, verse 28 Like Isaac are the children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. Paul is saying here in verse 29, persecution is taking place. When Isaac was born, Ishmael got jealous. That's one of the reasons why he had to go out of the camp. Ishmael got jealous. 
And he began saying things. There were little innuendos and little things that he was saying in relation to Isaac that caused Sarah to be concerned about Isaac's welfare. And so that was one of the reasons why basically Sarah said to Abraham, they've got to go out of the camp. And it's the same thing today. There are little innuendos that the flesh, that's what Isaac represents, and salvation by works, that's what, excuse me, Ishmael represents, salvation by works in the flesh. There are little innuendos that are going to be spoken, hopefully in our, according to Ishmael, according to that, that desire, hopefully in our hearing, that are going to try to undermine our inheritance of the promise. What I mean by that is this. Ishmael represents the flesh and righteousness by works, and Isaac represents the spirit and righteousness by faith, and the flesh and righteousness by works are always going to be trying to tell you things to guilt you, to undermine the promise that God has given you in Isaac. Just like Ishmael said things to try to undermine Isaac, so the flesh is going to try to say things, whisper things in your ear to undermine the promise that you have in Jesus Christ. There's this conflict that's taking place. And Paul talks about this in more detail when we get into, into Galatians chapter 5. The flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit wars against the flesh. In 4, he's basically saying, Ishmael wars against Isaac, and Isaac against Ishmael. There's a conflict taking place. Because Isaac says, no, 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 Ishmael. It's not by the flesh. It's not by works. It's by faith in Jesus. And Ishmael says, no, 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 you've got to work. You've you got to, there's no way that God's going to, you're so guilty. You're so, you're such a bad person. There's no way God can save you. Look at you. Look at you. You call yourself a Christian? Look at your life. And that's why I said, even if your life was like Job's, socially righteous, even if your life was, life was like Daniel's, politically righteous, even if your life was like Paul's, religiously righteous, even if your life was like John's, relationally righteous, you still would fall short. That voice would still be there. As soon as you look at Jesus, you would realize, and the voice would come again, you're not going to make it because your righteousness will never measure up. So kick that out of the camp. It's got to go. It's going out. The only way you can measure up is in the doing and dying of Jesus. He lived a perfect life, perfect righteousness, better than Job, better than Daniel, better than John, better than Paul, and he gifted that to us. And then he died substitutionary death for all of our failures, all of our sins, all of our shortcomings, and he gifted that to us. Receive it. There's nothing you can do. You can't, you can't produce the child. You can't produce the fruit. You can't fulfill the promise, but you can accept the promise. You can believe the promise, and by believing, you will be transformed and changed. You will be saved. Stop listening to the voice of Ishmael and listen and believe the voice of God. It took Abraham 25 years. He struggled over and over again with this. How long will it take us? It's my prayer that as we study Galatians 4, that we will be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt that we must cling to our salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. It's my prayer that you will reject anything that tries to get into the camp under the guise of righteousness by works, that Ishmael will go out, that Ishmael in all of us will be booted out of the camp by the Holy Spirit, that we will be sinners that are saved 100% 
by faith in Jesus Christ. And I just pray that this truth, this one truth of Christ our righteousness will be the truth that we cling to to the very end. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you this morning for giving us again another picture of our salvation from the Old Testament, showing us that though we live under this dispensation of grace, that sometimes we still slip back into that dispensation of law, that righteousness by works mentality, that Ishmael is still in all of us, and that you, by your Spirit, purpose to remove Ishmael from the camp. Not as a person, but as a theology, as a system, as a, as a, as a way of thinking and feeling about you. Father, thank you that we have salvation in the doing and dying of Jesus Christ, and the best of us pales in, in relationship to him, to his perfect love and perfect righteousness. Thank you that it's ours, it's gifted to us, and now may we live in that gift, and may we treat others the way that you've treated us. May we deal to them what you've dealt to us, this faith, this grace. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, we have a closing song.